Hello and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine, led by Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association, Dr. Albert Rizzo. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Hello, and thank you for joining today. I'm Dr. Albert Rizzo, a pulmonologist and Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association. Welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Blaze. Dr. Blaze is a clinical professor of pediatrics at Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia, and executive medical director of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. He has also served as president of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and is a past member of the board of directors of the World Allergy Organization. Dr. Blaze has published more than 120 scientific peer-reviewed articles and presented at more than 500 meetings and seminars throughout the world. He is eminently qualified to discuss our topic today, allergic asthma, and I hope you enjoy. Over the years, a number of terms have been used to describe or categorize asthma patients. These have included intrinsic, extrinsic, allergic, childhood, eosinophilic, high T2, low T2, severe, and on and on. When the term allergic asthma is used today, what should a clinician be thinking? First, I have to say all these terms just, they drive us all pretty crazy. You know, I always look at asthma as a, as a syndrome, and there is no one particular category for a group of patients. I think everybody's asthma is, in fact, unique. So, you know, and we're now using these type 2 high and type 2 low, and now we know they're mild. So it gets very confusing. So I'll tell you how I look at allergic asthma as an allergist. And first, it's important, you know, what's the history of the patient? Do they also have other atopic conditions? So especially do they have allergic rhinitis or atopic dermatitis or, or food allergy? But very importantly is the history is there any relationship between any particular exposure, any particular time of year, and in fact, increase flare-ups of the patient's asthma? And that doesn't always occur because we have many allergens that are perennial or year-round, like cat, and dust mite, and mold in certain areas of the country. So I think it's the history along with then uh, doing doing proper testing and then trying to put it all together to see if, in fact, a component of the patient's asthma may be related to allergies. As you know, the only way we could really prove it is, in fact, to do a provocation test. So let's say the patient we think has cat allergy, then to do an inhalation challenge with cat and see if, in fact, you provoke the asthma. That's the only way 100% to say it. So what we're trying to do is our best guess that there is, in fact, an allergic component, and then treatment may, in fact, improve the patient's asthma. And I guess that kind of feeds into my next question as far as how do you support this diagnosis with the role of the allergy testing, whether it's skin prick testing or specific IgE testing? What's the utility of those at this point in time? So it gets back to, and one of the things I emphasize, whether it's allergic rhinitis or asthma or food allergy, testing alone doesn't give you the answer. So really have to, again, try to relate the, the history and then use appropriate testing that may in fact go along with the history. An example would be a patient's asthma only flares up, say in the fall. So that could be viruses, but that could be ragweed, 
could be mold in certain areas, but it sure wouldn't be tree pollen. It wouldn't be grass pollen. So in other words, that type of history, I would do appropriate testing for the things that could occur during that time to in fact see uh, if the patient does have a sensitivity and then try to, to correlate it. So one of the things that, that uh, is bothering me and allergists around the country is a lot more of the direct-to-consumer allergy test, whether it's inhaler testing or whether it's food testing, and it just sends back all these positives. But that doesn't mean it's clinically relevant. Again, you have to have a history that goes along with then doing the, the appropriate testing. So whether it's allergy skin testing by the prick method or the blood studies, and in fact, the blood studies now in most of the labs are very good and very accurate. When do you then decide about uh, desensitization or immunotherapy in some of these patients? Where in the treatment algorithm do you put that? So it really depends upon, again, the history, the severity of the problem, and what already has been tried in the patient. So I kind of go through a threefold approach in, in that patient with allergic asthma. So one is, you know, what have I done? And we can talk about this later. What have I done in the environment to see if that would, in fact, help the patient? Number two, have I done appropriate therapy? And then with that, in many cases, then I will, will many times try uh, allergen immunotherapy. But the patient has to understand the, the possible benefits, the possible risk uh, associated with it. The good news is we know that allergen immunotherapy or desensitization is the only disease-modifying treatment we have for allergic conditions, which in fact does have an effect on the immune system, switching it from that TH2 high to, to more of a, a TH2 low or a non-TH2, whatever term you want to use now. And, and there is data in the literature that shows that it does, in fact, improve asthma. Probably the best studies, in fact, have, have come out of Europe with the dust mite sublingual tablet, uh, where, in fact, they have an indication in Europe to use this tablet in the treatment of patients with dust mite-induced asthma, where they've shown that they're able to decrease the exacerbation rate in the patient uh, population. We believe the same thing happens whether we're giving subcutaneous immunotherapy, which is what's typically done in, in the United States, so we don't have as rigorous studies as we do for, for the sublingual tablets. So I think it is an adjuvant for many patients that are suffering with allergies, including allergic asthma, but it doesn't mean every patient with allergic asthma should be placed on, on immunotherapy. And, and sublingual therapy is only available for certain specific allergens. Is that correct? Yeah. So in the United States, the only FDA approved sublingual immunotherapy is for the northern grasses for dust mite, but just in the adult population at this time, though that's going to be changing, I think, by the FDA, hopefully in the very near future. The phase three studies look very good. And ragweed, in fact, is available. In Canada, they also have birch, which also cross-reacts with, with oak in the United States, but that's not approved in the United States. All the other sublingual preparations, the drops, 
that are done in the United States are all off-label. None of them have been approved by the FDA, and that's why insurance doesn't cover them. That's why patients have to pay out of pocket. And at least my review of the literature, and I've written on this several times, we don't have studies that definitely say that the way it's being done in the United States with sublingual drops is efficacious. It's done different in Europe where sublingual drops are approved. The sublingual drops in Europe, uh, you get each allergen separately. So let's say you are allergic to dust mite and grass. You get a vial of of dust mite, you get a vial of grass, and then you would do drops of each one. In the United States, what's done is all of these are mixed together. And we don't have studies that have been done that show mixing the allergens as such uh, shows efficacy. So I think, you know, patients should understand that. And physicians that don't prescribe immunotherapy should, should understand that also. I suspect patients like it because they don't have to get shots. I guess that's one attractive reason for the sublingual if it's an offering for them. No, it obviously is. uh, There are a lot of attractions for sublingual. One is obviously the injection. Two is you don't have to come to the physician's office on a regular basis to uh, to get injections. It's, It's just done at home. And the side effect profile is much, much less when you look at anaphylaxis. I mean, basically anaphylaxis is unbelievably rare with, with sublingual compared to, it's still rare with injection, but if you look at one versus the other, it's much, much rarer with sublingual. So there definitely are advantages. You look at the clinical data, if, it, if both are done correctly, subcutaneous, sublingual, they both are about equal efficacy. I've heard that it may take anywhere from six to 12 months to start seeing benefit from desensitization therapy. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, and we tell patients that I always tell them it, it can be up to up to a, a year if in fact they're they're adherent and then we start weaning them down. There is data with the, the tablets to suggest that you may see efficacy sooner, especially if they're started before the, the season is what's recommended for grass and ragweed. But in general, yes, you will see improvement usually if done correctly within that year. Good. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what, what's some great advice for these individuals just in general with regard to their environment in order to avoid flares? Are there specific things that an allergic patient should pay attention to on a regular basis? Sure. And a lot of it depends on what they're allergic to. So one of the reasons I think allergy testing is helpful is finding out what it is or what may be causing and then trying to avoid that. So the patient that says has pet allergy, which, you know, is extremely common in the United States, you know, ideally there shouldn't be any pets in the house if the person has allergy. The the problem is, and I deal this with a regular basis, you know, a lot of times let's say a couple's getting married and one has cats that they love and the other one is allergic to cats. And in most cases, person would rather keep their cats than have the new spouse. So there are things that we have to try to do. One is keeping, you know, the pets out of the bedroom because that's where you spend a majority of your time in a 24 hour period. HEPA filters may help a little bit. There is now a new pet food that decreases levels of FLD1, which is the major allergen in cat, binds it up. And there's data to suggest that that may be 
helpful too. Things like pollen, the spring and the fall, uh, keeping the windows to the house and car closed so the pollen doesn't come in, don't dry clothing outside, staying indoors in the early morning hours, late in the afternoon where pollen levels seem to be the highest. If you have been working outside, when you come in, shower, make sure you get all the pollen off of you. Other things are a little harder. Dust mites, which you know are little microscopic bugs that grow on the carpet and the bedding, we try to get patients, especially to work in the bedroom again. So removing carpet, removing dust collectors, washing all the bedding with hot water. You know, dust mites grow in hot, humid temperature. So keeping the humidity down, keeping the temperature down will also help decrease dust mite uh, levels. And there are other things we do for other things. The main thing is to try to, you know, give the patient information on here's some things that can help maybe hopefully decrease it's not going to cure your problem in most cases, but definitely decrease your, your symptomatology. And is there a role for some indoor air filters? You mentioned, I believe, HEPA filters might be helpful for some patients. Yeah, this gets very controversial because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, of, of strong data uh, out there. In general, they're not that efficacious. But of the ones that we do recommend, the HEPA filter seems to be the best. And what I tell patients is that want to use one that's in that, so not a central one for the house, but one in that particular bedroom where that patient, in fact, is sleeping. And make sure that you get a size that does enough circulations of air per hour to help, in fact, clean the air. But it doesn't get rid of things like dust mites that don't stay up in the air. Uh, it may help a little bit with pets, but in general, they're not that effective for, for general allergies. So I don't have patients. There are studies going on and there's some devices in Europe where it's a special type of filter that goes over the bed, things like that, mm. but we're still waiting for these clinical studies. But in general, the ones you have now, what I would definitely say is you don't want an air purifier. Okay, an air purifier sometimes produces ozone and other things that we know are, are very irritant to the lungs and in fact can make asthma worse. So the only thing I do recommend is a HEPA filter. Very good, thank you for that. So let's switch gears a little bit. In general, inhaled steroids remain the foundation for asthma therapy and then the addition of, of bronchodilators. When patients are starting to need further therapy, what are some parameters you suggest help defining that patient that may need to go on to an asthma biologic, which certainly we're getting more and more of them uh, available to us these days? Yeah. And, and do the comorbidities you mentioned earlier, do that help you play a role in figuring out which may be the best biologic for certain patients? So there, there are certain things and I have kind of a checklist that I go through before making a decision that a patient that has been on inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists, say on a moderate dose, is now a possible candidate for, you know, even going first to a, a llama or, again, a, a biologic, you know, as, as you mentioned. So one is I want to make sure they're adherent to the medication I've already given them because I find that becomes a major problem and cost there becomes a problem for many of my patients. Number two, are they using it correctly? I, you know, nine times out of 10, when I have the patients demonstrate their inhalers to me, 
they're not using them correctly. When I used to teach at the University of Tennessee, I would always bet the medical students, if any of them could use a meter dose inhaler correctly, I'd go and exempt them and give them an A for the asthma part. I never had one in 10 years. <laughs> so, you know, medical students don't know how to use them. So those are the first two things. Then we look at comorbidities, like you said, and are they being treated? So is the patient's underlying allergic rhinitis being treated? Do they have sinus disease? As we know, many of the adult patients also have nasal polyps, which we know can aggravate their asthma. Do they have GERD that may, in fact, be aggravating their asthma? So I'll rule out all of those types of things also. And then if, in fact, we've done all those things and it still feel like, you know, now it's time maybe to, to up it, then I do think it's worth looking at I guess we now have, what, six, I think I've got that correct, six uh, biologics uh, that are approved by, uh, by the FDA. Uh, and basically all of them, to a certain degree, well, they all tend to work better the higher the blood eosinophils. Only one has a label that theoretically be used in patients with low eosinophils. And then I would make a decision on what their blood studies show, but probably more important than that is, is what the insurance will cover. As you know, these are extremely expensive medications. They don't cure the condition. They control the condition. And therefore, obviously, uh, we have to look at, at costs. So, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, I'm happy with any of the biologics. I think they all work, but... A lot of it, again, is related to cost. One of the issues I do have... Is that something you see often? And is that often hard to detect? Or does it go back to the history once again that's also yeah. important? Yeah, it really does go back. When I start them on a biologic, it really is trial and error. You know, we'll try it for four to six months. And if we don't see significant improvement, we may try, need to try another one. So I think, unfortunately... We can't tell the patient at this time that if I put you on biologic A, I'm like 95% sure this is going to get your asthma under control. So that's one of the issues we do have with biologics right now. And you mentioned the eosinophils. Do you still see a role for IgE levels or nitric oxide measurements in some of these patients? I'll be honest with you, I don't find them that helpful because one of the things, and this goes with eosinophils too, and I know I'm talking against the, the labels and stuff, but eosinophils fluctuate so much that levels change dramatically over time. There's a recent paper by CHIPS that was in ATS, a journal, that they followed eosinophil levels for one year every month. And patients kept switching categories from high to low. Even the month of the year that the eosinophils were drawn, they used July as the baseline, they were 25% higher in January and in December than what they were in July. So I always tell docs uh, when they ask me, I go, keep drawing them and eventually you'll get an eosinophil level that'll let you qualify for a biologic. So I do have a problem with all of these biomarkers at the time. They're just not accurate. Well, I appreciate your candor and real world advice in that regard. I wanted to touch briefly on when it comes along as far as a patient possibly having a work-related or occupational asthma. Uh, is that something you see often? And is that often hard to detect? Or does it go back to the history once again that's also yeah. important? 
Yeah, it really does go back uh, back to the history. So obviously we want to know when we get a uh, ideally a total environmental history on the patient. Obviously, one of the, the questions I always ask is, you know, what do you do for a living? And I do see right now in the clinic I'm working at is an underserved clinic. And I see lots of painters and I see lots of housekeepers and hairdressers. And so they're around a lot of irritants that could in fact be provoking their asthma. So I do think, you know, you have to, you know, in certain cases, it, it's their only livelihood. You know, we try to work with, with different things and so that we can hopefully get them, you know, increased relief. And many of them will come in and tell me, you know, it's only when I'm painting or doing these types of things, but it's their only livelihood. So it becomes a, a difficult situation, but, but it's extremely important in every asthma patient to, to get that work-related occupational history, because there may be, in fact, times where things can be done. I'll get the painters to get the, the different, in fact, you know, a respirator mask and things like that to help decrease exposure hopefully allows them to, to paint without exacerbations. Often there's a, a relationship found between obesity and asthma. Does this apply to the type of patient we're talking about today, the allergic asthma as well, do you feel? Yeah, so I, there, there's no doubt that we do see obese, allergic, asthmatic patients. And I don't think there's any doubt that the obesity, in fact, works, worsens the condition. I know there's a phenotype of primarily adult women obese that, that tend to have asthma and they don't tend to be allergic. But I see many pediatric patients with allergic asthma, they're obese, and again, the adult population. And I think we're really starting to understand, you know, more and more about, uh, you know, the obesity. We know that it can increase certain inflammatory mediators, leptin and others that may in fact be part of this. The diet in and of themselves, I mean, patients in general, especially I'm seeing an inner city population, the obesity, a lot of this is related to processed foods, which, you know, high saturated fats, low antioxidant diet, and that may also contribute to uh, problems. And then just the obesity itself can lead to uh, difficulty as far as uh, worsening their asthma and, and breathing problems. So one of the things, you know, we try to work on, probably the hardest thing uh, to, to work on in that asthma patient uh, is in fact the obesity. And many of them are scared to exercise because they're worried about their, their asthma. So again, trying to get their asthma under control so that they can start slowly exercising and then try to work slowly with them on their diet. So I do think like almost any other chronic disease now, we have to look at obesity itself as a chronic disease and, and work with our patients on that. So based on your experience and certainly where you are in the field, what, what do you see are some likely advances either in the diagnosis or better characterization of this patient population and, and hopefully therapies? Where do you see things in the future? So I, I really think what, uh, what we need, we keep talking about precision medicine and everyone was saying, well, the type two high, type two low, that's precision, but we're really not there yet. And we really need better molecular genetic biomarkers that we can find at each patient so that we can really do targeted therapy, which right now we've got better therapies, but they're not really in what I would call, as we talk about in cancer, true targeted therapies. 
And so to me, there's some interesting work going on in the NIH, looking at more uh, genetic or molecular type of biomarkers and, and really trying to get a better understanding of truly being able to phenotype asthma patients and then get directed therapy for their condition. So that's what we, we really need. We're far behind our oncologist friends, and we, we've got to do a, a better job there. I think to me, that's the, the number one thing. As far as, as new treatments, we still need treatments for patients with what we call non-eosinophilic asthma. We know that there's still only about, uh, with the biologics we have now, we see about a 50% decrease in exacerbation. So we definitely, they're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It's better. So again, we need more targeted therapies that hopefully will work at other locations. You know, we're looking, obviously, we have one that's recently approved for one of the alarmins, TSLP, but maybe we need a cocktail of maybe the other alarmins also, 33 and, and 25 to really get to to better. So there's a lot of research going on on IL-33. There's work going on on IL-25, at least mouse studies and hopefully human studies in in the near future. So maybe blocking further upstream uh, will work better for many of our patients. There's a lot of work now on drugs that affect the mast cells. And we know their importance in asthma, so we'll have to wait and see what happens related to those particular treatments. And uh, to me, the most exciting thing is, can we prevent asthma? Can we present atopic disease? So I'm really waiting for the results of, of the PARC study, which is a study that's been going on now, I guess it's close to five years in the U.S., so it'll be wrapping up soon where they've used one of the biologics, in this case, omalizumab, in young children, two to three with with allergic rhinitis, and to see if in fact, with several years of treatment of omalizumab, can you prevent them from developing asthma? So to me, one of the exciting things are, are there treatments and maybe some of these biologics, maybe if omalizumab does it, maybe some of the others will, that if we could start them early, we could block that atopic march and therefore prevent the development of asthma. So to me, I'm really hope that study is positive. Even if it's negative, we'll still learn a lot, but maybe there'll be other agents uh, in the pipeline that we, in fact, uh, will lead to a uh, prevention of asthma in the population. They've given us a pretty good horizon to look for as far as some of the uh, anticipations and what's going on in research. And I want to thank you for your time today. You did a comprehensive job with a lot of pearls in there that hopefully our listeners are going to take to heart and use in their patient population. So thank you again for the time today, Dr. Blaze. Yeah, and thank you for inviting me. For more pulmonary and critical care content, visit our website, consultant360.com.